I've noticed recently in the media there's been a kind of spate of interest in happiness. In psychological literature, they're doing a lot of studies to try to figure out, you know, what, what brings happiness? How does it that some people are happy and some aren't? And what they're finding is that happiness does not seem to be correlated with all the usual things that we think it should be correlated with, like degree of money, amount of money, or amount of success, or um, status in the society, or having a lot of, of family around, or all those things that we think of and associate with happiness. There's no correlation. It also seems that they are, rightly so, and interestingly so, looking at the physical correlates of happiness, thinking maybe there's a happiness gene that they can isolate, and you know, we can all find a way to be happy by having the right genes. Now, there may be physical correlates to having a, a happier disposition or a more optimistic outlook, but tonight I'd like to speak about happiness from the point of view of this practice, which is from the point of view of practice, happiness is not so much a result of having all the right accoutrements in our lives or a result of having the right kind of story or having the right contents of thought in our mind, but rather a result of how we use our attention. How we use our attention. So that is what I'd like to speak about tonight. And I'd like to talk about the first kind of happiness that we as human beings usually bump into. And that is the happiness of sense pleasure. Pleasant sights, pleasant sounds, pleasant sensations, thoughts, emotions, moods. This brings a sense of delight, of happiness. <clears throat> when we are filled, at the same time, when we are filled with uh, greed, with hatred, with delusion, it seems that we seek very intense or enormous amounts of sensory pleasure in order to feel happy. The more, the better. We seek out a certain level of intensity in sensory stimulation. With a lessening of greed, of hatred, of delusion in the mind, we discover more simple sense pleasures. We find that we are content with less, that our wants cease being so complicated, and that we actually don't need to spend as much time and energy in the search for pleasure through the senses. It is one of the blessings of the lessening of greed and aversion in the mind to discover the happiness and delight in the simplicity of a cool drink of water on a warm day, a cool breeze on one's skin, a lovely sound of a bird, etc. There was a wonderful um, man by the name of Ryokan, who lived as a hermit in the mountains and lived a very simple life, and he knew the secret of this happiness. He wrote a poem, Without desire, everything is sufficient. With seeking, myriad things are impoverished. Plain vegetables can soothe hunger. A patched robe is enough to cover this bent old body. Alone I hike with the deer. Cheerfully I sing with village children. The stream under the cliff cleanses my ears. The pine on the mountaintop fits my heart. The happiness of sense pleasure. Now as Americans living in a consumer culture, culture, it seems like our koan, both individually and as a society, is the question, how much do we need to be happy? How many possessions 
do we need to have? How much do we need to consume in the way of sensory stimulation, choices? It seems like with our possessions, do we own them or do they own us? Because if we really look, we all have so much in our lives. When we really look and we see that the more we own, what? The more we need to take care of, the more we need to protect, to maintain, to keep going, to upgrade, to move, to repair, to dispose of. You know, this can keep us very busy. I'm planning a garage sale when I get home. <laughs> Does all this possessing bring happiness? Some years ago, when I was living in Berkeley, California, and we had a huge fire that destroyed 3,000 homes, it was interesting on the news and in the newspapers to read about the different people who had lost tremendous, you know, property, uh, possessions, work, all kinds of things. But there were a couple of people that I, that I noticed who said they felt actually quite relieved. <laughs> you know, they felt a lightness suddenly in their life. They didn't have all this stuff to take care of anymore. And there was one old man on, on the news one night who said he f said for years he'd felt like a watchdog keeping watch on his house. And now he had nothing more to watch. <laughs> so how much do we need? A good koan question. This consumer culture gives us so many choices, so many choices. If any of you have traveled to a third world country and then returned here, it can seem overwhelming, you know, to go into the supermarket and just try to buy a can of soup, you know. I mean, there's just like 50 varieties there before your eyes, and you thought you knew what you wanted before you went in, but the moment you start looking, you think, well, maybe I should get this, maybe I should get that, and then you start reading labels, and it gets even more confusing. So we have all these choices. We have all this information coming at us through computers, through internet, through faxes, through entertainment. We have so much, so many choices. And in the spiritual domain, it also seems true. There's so many choices. It's a spiritual supermarket of teachers and teachings and traditions and books and workshops. How much of that can we possibly use or need? When is enough enough? Do more consumer choices bring happiness? Sense contact, the contact of pleasant sensory experience, is said to be like fool's gold fool's gold. It sparkles momentarily, but it doesn't really bring real wealth. The second kind of happiness I want to talk about is the happiness of cultivating an open heart, of cultivating beautiful states of mind, loving kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, equanimity. These are happy states of mind which we can choose to cultivate in our practice, really doing metta practice over a period of time. You begin to really see the power of the possibility of cultivating just by bringing our attention over and over and over again through the cultivation of positive intention to extend loving-kindness to ourselves and all beings, to extend compassion, the quivering of the heart, to extend sympathetic joy, to rejoice in the happiness and success of ourselves and others, to be open-hearted and equanimous in the face of all of life's vicissitudes. These are particular mind states which we can cultivate and which bring a great deal of happiness. 
Many years ago, uh, when I first moved to California from New York, I was not looking for a spiritual practice. And yet I met a Tibetan Lama and I heard him talk several times and it was a moment of pure compassion which opened me to the Dharma, which actually I think changed my life. Because as he was speaking about this quality of compassion, something got transmitted and I saw for the first time in my life that compassion wasn't just a nice word, wasn't just a nice idea, wasn't something you only talked about in church, but that it was actually a living force, a living quality of open-heartedness, quite palpable. It had quite a profound impact on me, understanding this. I remember also the first time that I did a long period of loving-kindness practice. And when we do loving-kindness practice, we begin with the benefactor, then we go on to extending loving-kindness to ourselves and then to a friend, and then we come to a category called the neutral person. And I was given the instruction, by then I'd been doing metta for some weeks, uh, maybe five weeks or so, I was given the instruction to pick somebody at the retreat that I didn't know that I felt quite neutral about. Didn't have any strong liking for, nor did I have any strong disliking for, so I did that. And I began to send uh, this woman uh, metta. Every day, from morning to night, I was just completely focused on sending metta to this person that I didn't know. And even though I had felt the power of loving-kindness practice, you know, throughout the retreat, it really got strong for me while I was sending it to this person that I knew nothing about. Because I began to see very clearly that my feelings of love for this person had nothing whatsoever to do with her had nothing whatsoever to do with the object, but everything to do with my mind, my consciousness. After one week, I began to see the most beautiful qualities in this person. It was like falling in love, and I began to watch for her every day. I began to kind of worry about her like a mother would for her child. You know, is she eating enough? Did she put on her coat to go out? I hope she doesn't get a cold. I just had all this like overflowing concern and love for her. Not worry, just kind of wanting her really to be happy. So I'd leave her little bits of chocolate here and there. and She became like this beloved being, totally beloved. And to this day, I do not know her name. This kind of happiness which we can cultivate is called deva happiness because it is like living in heaven, heaven on earth, not dependent on the pleasures of the senses, and not dependent on the circumstances in which we find ourselves, but only dependent on our ability to keep extending this intention over and over and over again to the object of our loving-kindness practice. The Burmese woman, the peace activist and Nobel Prize winner Aung San Suu Kyi that I mentioned the other night, was put under house arrest in Burma for several years, and she lived pretty much in seclusion. And this was her practice, cultivating these qualities of heart and being, so that even though she was being held as a political prisoner, she was really strengthening her ability to meet her situation with a great deal of balance and fortitude and real compassion. Now, cultivating these qualities, these happy mind states, 
helps to smooth and balance our emotions. They strengthen the heart and its capacity to open and to see clearly and to respond to the world with suffering and care, with compassion and care. But they do not produce insight. They do not liberate. They do not help us to find the happiness of liberating insight. The third kind of happiness I want to speak about is the happiness of concentration. The happiness of concentration. Many spiritual traditions, including Buddhism, have a whole area of practice which is focused on the cultivation of concentration. When we are steady in our ability to concentrate, whether it be on the breath or a body sensation or a metaphrase, a natural happiness arises because in that steadiness and focus and exclusivity of our attention, the hindrances are in abeyance momentarily. A great deal of happiness arises as a result of undivided attention. Now when we are concentrated, there is that quality of being unified and happy, absorbed and focused on our object. When we, when the concentration abates or we lose our concentration, we are once again perhaps flooded with hindrances. So it does not bring the hindrances to an end, but it is a temporary refuge from them. With increased levels of concentration, we can explore many states of absorption, sometimes called the jhanas. Many very subtle realms of rapture, of happiness, of equanimity, of silence, of boundless space, pure consciousness. These higher levels of absorption require quite a bit of skill, they require guidance, and they also sometimes require years of dedicated practice. One Buddhist text describes 40 concentration practices and how each can lead to very high states of absorption. As wonderful and interesting and amazing as these states are, bringing great bliss and happiness, they are still in the realm of conditions. They do not bring wisdom. They do not bring lasting happiness, only momentary. They do not free us from suffering. They are still in the realm of conditions. They arise and they pass. There is no lasting wisdom or happiness in these states of concentration. In fact, there is one story told about a Buddhist monk who was um, living in Sri Lanka, and he was very interested in learning more about these states of absorp absorption. So he heard of a great Indian teacher um, in India who was a Hindu, and he decided to go visit this man and see if he would give him instruction in how to attain some of these higher jhanas. So he went to the Hindu teacher, and the Hindu teacher said, yes, I will teach you, but he said, he began to chide the monk about being a Buddhist monk and depending on other people for his food, and he sort of was chastising the monk, and they got into an argument. And they went at it for a while, just bickering back and forth, but then they couldn't resolve it, so they just stopped, and, and the master said, well, now I'll give you the instructions for the, the concentration practice. So he did, and the, the young man, the monk, went off into the forest, and he practiced for a few days doing the concentration practices, and they worked, and he went into very high levels of absorption, great bliss, great rapture, great happiness. And then he came out, and he went to see the master, and they immediately resumed their bickering. <laughs> Attainment of absorption is not a source of wisdom. It doesn't 
leave us any wiser than we were before. So then we come, after the happiness of sense pleasure, the happiness of beautiful states of mind, the happiness of concentration, we come to the happiness of liberating insight. The Buddha himself explored all these various kinds of happiness, and it was his understanding that none of them were liberating, the three we have spoke about, which made him dissatisfied and made him look further to find a way to really free himself. As a young prince, he had experienced many pleasures of the senses, having every need and want and desire satisfied, living in the palace as a prince. Then as a wandering sadhu, he explored the Brahma-viharas, the, the beautiful states of mind and heart. He explored the jhanas, the absorptions, learning how to concentrate at ever more refined levels. But he saw that it was not the deepest truth. He saw that it was not liberation. And so he went on to determine to discover the happiness of liberating insight. This is really the focus of what we are doing here, of, this, of our practice on this retreat. Understanding this happiness of liberating insight. Now, Christina spoke last evening about insight about how sometimes, although it can be profound, sometimes it is very subtle. It always affects us on a cellular level. It is not just an intellectual understanding. And it all, often, if it is deep, becomes quite much an integrated part of our daily perception, our daily lives, how we view things and how we respond to the world. Liberating insight may come suddenly, it may come imperceptibly and gradually. The Zen teacher Suzuki Roshi talked about liberating insight. He said it's like walking in the fog or a heavy mist and staying out there for some time. He said when you are walking in the fog, you may not realize that you're getting wet. But when you come in, you find you are absolutely soaked through. In the same way, we absorb insights as we sit, as we walk. It is also true that liberating insight is subject to the same laws of emptiness and impermanence that everything else in our world is. We cannot control how or when we are going to have a liberating insight. We can't just sit down and determine, okay, I'm ready for my liberating insight. I want my money's worth. If this were possible, retreats at IMS would be quite a bit shorter. Probably by now you would have decided, okay, it's time for my liberating insight, and you would have gone home already. We can't just make it happen that way. Instead, on retreat, we cultivate the conditions which are maximally conducive, you could say, to insight arising. Like my friend Surya Das is fond of saying, enlightenment is an accident, and retreats make us more accident-prone. <laughs> we keep silence. We slow down. We are instructed to pay close attention over and over to the present unfolding process. We are instructed to keep looking, keep seeing, not to get stuck in repetitive grooves, not to cling, just to keep going, keep exploring with your attention this always present and alive moment. But this is like going into unknown territory, so against our habits, is it? 
But we need to do it. We need to see it for ourselves, what is there to be discovered. We don't know when we start what is there, but we need to keep looking to find, to explore. For example, we may tell you, and we have, that there is no self. But you have to discover this truth for yourself. It brings no benefit to parrot the examples and statements of others by just saying, well, it's empty. For example, people may say that there are not any tigers in a place where they are rumored to be. But you may not feel convinced that this is true. Instead, you may be disturbed by doubts about it. But when you yourself have traced the root of mind and have arrived at certainty about it. It is as if you had gone to a place where tigers are said to live and had explored the whole region from top to bottom to see for yourself if there are any tigers. When you don't find any, you are certain, and from then on you have no doubt about whether or not tigers are there. That is our practice, exploring with our attention. As we settle down and develop in calmness and clarity and acceptance of how things are moment to moment, we can see sometimes how we are contracted, sometimes we are caught in grasping or holding, other times we are expansive, allowing, flowing with what is, allowing everything to be just as it is, no more than that, just resting in the seeing itself, allowing our world to move and to change and to reveal itself to us. In the seeing and recognition of both of these states, both of contraction and expansion, over and over again, we begin to notice how things are, free of our concepts, free of our preferences. We begin to notice the immutable law of impermanence, of constant change. We begin to notice the non-locatability of the tigers, of what we call self. We begin to notice the uncontrollability of much of our world. We begin to notice the suffering which occurs when we try to hold on, when we try to make it other than it is, when we try to solidify what is changing and ungraspable, when we insist on me and mine when we try to make the world conform to our preferences, when we try to solidify our personal version of reality. We see as we sit over and over what are called the three characteristics of every moment of conditioned existence. What are they? Impermanence, suffering, and no self. Three characteristics of every moment of conditioned existence. This seeing which we can explore in our moment-to-moment -moment practice, in our experience, which we can reflect on over and over, is what loosens our fixation on our personal world and allows for the possibility of liberating insight. I'd like to spend a little time on each of these three characteristics. Asking a question and inviting your reflection. How do each of these three characteristics appear from the point of view of the personal self? And how do each of these three characteristics appear from the point of view of clear seeing, 
of awareness. What I am calling the personal self, we could call the liking-disliking mind or grasping. What I call awareness is the home of wisdom and compassion. Resting in awareness, we see through the eyes of wisdom and compassion. Okay, so let's look at each of these three characteristics. Let's begin with, the, with dukkha, suffering. We've talked about it some, and there are two aspects which I want to mention, two aspects of suffering. One is called the torments of mind, the suffering of painful mental states. Pretty obvious suffering. The suffering of anger, of fear, of anxiety, of worry, of restlessness, of envy, of longing, of comparing. Pretty obvious suffering. Then there is the suffering of the unreliability of changing conditions. That nothing can be relied on to stay the same. Now from the point of view of the personal self, of the liking and disliking mind, these torments of mind are taken to mean something is terribly wrong with me that must be fixed. The torments of mind, when experienced, lead us to conclusions about who we are. I'm experiencing fear. There must be something wrong. I must fix. I'm experiencing unworthiness. I must be unlovable. I'm experiencing confusion. I must be very stupid. I'm experiencing the fact that I'm lazy. I must work harder. I'm experiencing that I don't understand this practice. Why am I always failing in life? This is called suffering. These torments are taken to be a reference to a personal self. From the point of view of awareness, however, these same torments of mine can be viewed like changing weather. Anger is anger, rain is rain, fear is fear, the wind is the wind. Changing weather, each with its own nature, each with its own flavor, each with its own texture, nothing more than that. All coming and going in their own time, in their own way, when we do not interfere with them, when we do not grasp onto them as being some definition of who we are. torments of mine, the unreliability of changing conditions, that we never know for sure how things are going to turn out. Now from the point of view of the personal self, this is not acceptable. We need to control, we need to know, we need to figure out, we need to get on top of things, we need to plan for every contingency. This unreliability of changing conditions is experienced by the personal self as cause for great insecurity, fear, and vulnerability. From the point of view of awareness, of wisdom, of compassion, this unreliability is no surprise. It is no surprise. There's no investment in the outcome whatsoever from the point of awareness. Like awareness can shine like a mirror, just reflecting what is so, without an opinion, without a need for things to be any different than they are. There are times in our practice when we are seeing through the eyes of the personal self. There are times in our practice when we are seeing with the eyes of awareness. It is the difference between suffering and freedom. 
So the second characteristic, that of impermanence, of constantly changing conditions. The Buddha said, birth will end in death, youth will end in old age, meetings will end in separation, wealth will end in loss. All things that exist in cyclic existence are impermanent, are transient. Now from the point of view of the personal self, what does this look like? Again, quite unacceptable. We try to hold on when we find something that seems to give us security or pleasure. I'd like to read something about, uh, from a book called Einstein's Dream, which is a kind of meditation on time and the fantasy of what, what it would be like if we could hold on, what it would be like if time stood still. <coughs> At the place where time stands still, one sees parents clutching their children in a frozen embrace that will never let go. The beautiful young daughter with blue eyes and blonde hair will never stop smiling the smile she smiles now, will never lose the soft pink glow on her cheeks, will never grow wrinkled or tired, will never get injured, will never unlearn what her parents have taught her will never think thoughts that her parents don't know, will never know evil, will never tell her parents that she does not love them, will never stop touching her parents as she does now. At the place where time stands still, one sees lovers kissing in the shadows of buildings in a frozen embrace that will never let go. The loved one will never take his arms from where they are now, will never journey far from his lover, will never fail to show his love, will never become jealous, will never fall in love with someone else, will never lose the passion of this instant in time. What if we were telling you, what if the instructions on this retreat were to find your best moment and hold on to it and keep repeating it over and over again? Is that what you'd like? <laughs> try, just try. Sometimes we do try to direct the flow of change. There's a story I want to share about a meditator who went off into the woods to meditate on his own, decided to do a self-retreat, found a cabin by a lovely stream, and he felt so fortunate to have this beautiful bubbling stream by his cabin so he could sit, and he just anticipated the, the pleasure he was going to get out of sitting and listening to the stream, you know, for 10 days. So it was kind of nice the first few days, and then about the fourth day, he began to notice that the stream was beginning to sound a little different. In fact, it seemed that the stream was actually singing a song. And it was not a song that he was that really thrilled about. <laughs> In fact, it was playing the Star Spangled Banner. <laughs> He started hearing the Star Spangled Banner from morning to night. It seemed that the stream could only play one song. Believing very firmly in his perception, he'd started to go out and rearrange the rocks in the stream, so hoping that the stream might play yet another song, a little more pleasing. So he got very busy changing the rocks in the stream. Now, where was this song coming from? Was it coming from the stream? I don't think so. But nevertheless, we do try to control. We do try to change the flow of events. Now, sometimes in this changing world, we notice in our lives that we're going along and we feel like we know who we are in the story, and then suddenly something happens and the storyline suddenly changes. 
Sometimes it only takes one thing in our lives and our whole world changes. The sudden loss of a loved one, a sudden illness, a car accident, or our house burning down. And suddenly we are in a different story. We are a different character with different emotions, a different role to play. Who we thought we were in the old story is revealed to be illusory, only real in relation to ephemeral circumstances. The athlete is suddenly the invalid. The wife is suddenly the widow. The millionaire is suddenly the pauper. The beloved child is suddenly the orphan. Different identities, different stories. Reflect on these changes that you see in your own life and in those around you. Allow them to inform your life. Because eventually our story will change. Old age, sickness, and death. These may not be our story now, but for most of us, they eventually will be our story. Perhaps not even old age. Perhaps not even sickness, but death for sure. What is it that prevents us from allowing this truth into our lives more pervasively, more acutely. In most of us, there is a certain amount of denial. Woody Allen put it this way. He said, it's not that I'm afraid to die. I just don't want to be there when it happens. Now, from the point of view of the personal self, these sudden changes are very scary. They provoke feelings of insecurity and vulnerability, fear of loss, tremendous grief. They call forth strategies of denial, of control, and manipulation. From the point of view of clear seeing of awareness itself, the teaching of changes changing the changing nature of the world, we see over and over the futility of trying to hold on, of trying to grasp the ungraspable. We see the suffering of resistance, of clinging, of contraction and dwelling. From the point of view of awareness, we see actually that there is so much more at work than the liking and disliking of the personal self. There's an Ojibwe saying, sometimes I go about pitying myself, and all the while I am being carried by great winds across the sky. Can we open our perspective? When we see with the eyes of awareness, we can rest at ease with kind-hearted interest in the comings and goings, the beginnings and ends, the appearing and disappearing. Or perhaps we can be like the saint in Rishikesh, whose entire practice consists of walking from his cave every morning to the waterfall, standing by the waterfall, all day and at the end of the day, bowing to the waterfall and saying, well done, well done. (laughs) Can we really see clearly the futility of trying to hold on, of trying to direct things to our will? The Buddha took the seeing of impermanence as an inspiration to practice. He said, when he was teaching, he said, suppose that I, who am subject to decay and death, were to seek my happiness in that which is also subject to decay and death, would that be for my benefit? Of course, his students said, no. He asked again, suppose that I, who am subject to decay and death, were to seek my happiness in that which is beyond death, 
in the deathless, would that be for my benefit? The students replied, yes, of course. We too can use impermanence as an inspiration to discover the unconditioned, the deathless, that which is not subject to birth and death. This is where true abiding happiness lies. The happiness that nothing can disturb, no external circumstance. The happiness of liberating insight. So suffering, impermanence, the third characteristic, the truth of anatta, or no self. This is simply the fact, the actual fact that there is no in no separate individual self running the show. There is a body, there is a mind, there is functioning, there is doing, but there is no one directing or controlling any of it. There are, as Christina talked about last night, only these five heaps. The body, the feeling, the perception, the mental formations, and consciousness. The Buddha said, body is not self. Feeling is not self. Perception is not self. Mental formations are not self. Consciousness is not self. The fact that they are believed to be and grasped at as self is the source of our suffering. So how can we experience this and investigate this in our practice, like looking for the tigers? Well, let's take the example of our breath. When we are born, we begin breathing. When we die, we will stop breathing. And in between, we are breathing 24 hours a day, night and day. Are you required to do the job? No. Breathing breathes itself. As there's this funny thing that happens sometimes when you direct your attention to the breath, suddenly you feel like you're the one in charge. And you think that I've got to breathe right, and you try to meddle with it and fix it and make it better or make it different. The breath doesn't need you to do any of that. The breath is doing its job all by itself. There is no one breathing. In the same way, Seeing is occurring. Have you noticed that? Seeing is happening all by itself. There is no one making it happen. There is no one making it happen. Isn't that a relief for one thing? I mean, what if you had to figure out how to see and make it happen and keep it going? That would be a real problem. It's happening all by itself. In the same way, we can say tasting is occurring. There is no one making it happen. In the same way, we can say hearing is occurring. There is no one making it happen. Sensations are occurring. There is no one making it happen. Do you get that? Do you see that? It's all happening by itself, according to its own laws, the coming together of conditions. Now, we may get a sense of this when it comes to those sense doors on the physical level of breathing and hearing and seeing and tasting and smelling. We can see how impersonally they are all functioning. You know, well, everyone breathes, everyone hears, everyone sees, everyone tastes. It's like, okay, that seems pretty impersonal. But when it comes to thinking and when it comes to emotions, we all too quickly assume a me 
to whom the thinking and emotions refer back to. We assume ownership, my thoughts, my feelings, my mind states. The same thing applies to these mental formations as applies to breathing or hearing. No one is making all of this happen. When we do imagine that we own our thoughts, our feelings, when we do imagine that they uh, uh, refer back to a someone, we are making a big mistake. This is what creates most of our suffering. Everyone hears, everyone breathes. We often feel, however, but no one else thinks my thoughts, no one else feels my feelings. Our thoughts and feelings seem very personal. They seem to be about us. They seem to be ours. Well, let's look at that for a moment. How personal are they? We think, most of us, in English. Or, if English is not our native language, perhaps we think in the language that we learned when we were a child, whatever language we were taught. If we were raised in India, we'd think in Hindi, or Tamil, or Parsi. We learn to think in English. In fact, we can only think in English. If you tried to think in Hindi or Swahili or something, you probably wouldn't have too many thoughts. <laughs> we only think in English, and we only can think with the number of words that we've learned. You know, if I don't know a word, it's not going to be part of my repertoire of thinking. If I don't know a word like profligate, I'm not sure I know the meaning of this word. That's why I brought it up. If I don't know the meaning of this word, it's probably, I'm not probably going to be thinking in it. These words were taught to me. They were inherited, you could say, from this collective English world this of language. We were taught words, and we also learned a lot when we were ch children about what to think about what's important to think about. And for the most part, we learned what was important to think about from who? From our parents, depending on what they thought was important to think about. We learned from our teachers. We learned from our peers what was important to think about. And we began to create these grooves of thought in the mind. So that when we look at thinking this way, we can see that most of our thinking is highly influenced by the collective, by other people, by what we've learned, by what we've inherited. It may not be quite as personal and unique as we like to imagine. The content of our thinking may not be highly unique. You know, how many of you in the past 24 hours have had a few thoughts about the food, or your body, or the weather, or the other people here, or the, the fact that the retreat is coming to an end, or the interviews, or your meditation practice. Probably many of you have had, you know, kind of in the ballpark thinking about these. Shake your heads if this is true. I mean, you know, let's see. It's like, yeah, we probably had a few thoughts about this, this kind of generic thinking going on. Not only is our thinking kind of generic, but it tends to be repetitive. You know, the study that 93% of our thoughts are the same thoughts that we thought about yesterday, you know, and that only about 7% are somehow a little bit creative or new or, or unique. So our thinking, it seems like we share a lot of commonality. And then we see that thoughts come, thoughts go, and they seem to do so all by themselves. We never know what we're going to think next. We can't necessarily control the content of our thinking. We can, at some, to some degree, just as we can control our breathing for limited periods of time, we can also exert some control over our thinking. But even when we are trying to focus and exert control, 
they still seem to have a life of their own, sometimes with some humorous results. I'll give you an example from when I was doing my uh, a, a long period of metta practice, which is a way of focusing and only thinking about certain intentions, the intention to send loving-kindness. So one of my phrases in doing loving-kindness practice was, may I be free from harm. Now, I'd been saying this for weeks, you know, may I be free from harm, may I, from morning to night, may I be free from harm. Suddenly, one day, I heard myself saying, may I be free from Harry. <laughs> and I thought, who's Harry? You know, I don't even know Harry. You know, like, Harry, like, how did that happen? Like, may I be free from Harry? And it would come up every now and then. I think, what's this? You know, I'm, may I be free from harm? May I be free from Harry? And of course, under stress, our thinking, even when we're trying to be reasonable, kind of goes bananas. There are reports of accidents submitted to insurance, com insurance companies verbatim. Coming home, I drove into the wrong driveway and collided with a tree I don't have. <laughs> the guy was all over the road. I had to swerve a number of times before I hit him. <laughs> The telephone pole was approaching. I was attempting to swerve out of its way when it struck my car. An invisible car came out of nowhere, struck my car, and vanished. I pulled away from the side of the road, glanced at my mother-in-law, and headed over the embankment. People are trying to explain very coherently what's happening. Our thoughts are not as much under our control as we would like to think. However, from the point of view of this personal self, this liking and disliking mind, our thinking is who we are. We believe most of our thoughts, and particularly our thoughts about ourselves, particularly the conclusions we draw or the judgments we have about who we are. I'm no good, I'm right, I'm incompetent, I'm failing, I'm improving, I'm too angry, I'm too sad, I'm too depressed, I'm this, I'm that. From the point of view of this personal self, the idea of no self makes no sense whatsoever. It makes no sense to the grasping mind which knows what it likes and what it doesn't like and is completely invested in how things turn out. The idea of no self may sound rather cold, rather uncaring, rather disconnected, rather lonely, rather fearful from the point of view of the personal self. Or it may seem so absurd as to be humorous, worth dismissing. A man writes about his aging father. This man was a practicing Buddhist. He said, when my father was old, I tried to introduce him to the Buddhist doctrine of emptiness. I thought it would ease any anxiety he might be having about the imminence of death. Ultimately, I began, you never were. <laughs> Maybe not, he said, peering over the rim of his glasses, but I made a hell of a splash where I should have been. <laughs> Doesn't make sense. Or we may just, in hearing about this idea of no self, we may remain unconvinced. Ramana Maharshi gave an example of this. He said, we're all like the, the man who gets on the moving train and stands in the aisle holding his luggage and walking in the aisle as the train is moving. We don't realize that we, you know, that we, we think that we have to do it all. 
It's actually already happening all by itself. (coughs) From the point of view of the wisdom mind, of awareness itself, the self appears, this personal self appears as a momentary fiction which has no basis but simply appears like a dream, a mirage, a rainbow, or an echo, momentarily convincing but without any enduring substance or reality. Tibetan Lama by the name of Dingo Kensi wrote, Like waves, all the activities of this life have rolled endlessly on, yet they have left us empty-handed. Myriads of thoughts have run through our mind, yet all they have done is increase our confusion and dissatisfaction. Normally we operate under the deluded assumption that everything has some sort of true and substantial reality. But when we look more carefully, we find that the phenomenal world is like a rainbow, vivid and colorful, but without any tangible existence. When a rainbow appears, we see many beautiful colors. Yet a rainbow is not something we can clothe ourselves with or wear as an ornament. It simply appears through the conjunction of various conditions. Thoughts arise in the mind in just the same way. They have no tangible reality or intrinsic existence. There is, therefore, no logical reason why thoughts should have so much power over us, nor any reason why we should be so enslaved by them. Once we recognize that thoughts are empty, then the mind will no longer have the power to deceive us. But as long as we take our deluded thoughts as real, they will continue to torment us mercilessly, as they have been doing throughout countless past lives. To gain control over the mind, we need to be vigilant, examining all our thoughts, words, and actions. It's important to understand that all appearances are void, like the appearance of water in a mirage. Beautiful forms are of no benefit to the mind, nor can ugly forms harm it in any way. Sever the ties of hope and fear attraction and repulsion, and remain in equanimity. So our insight practice is to explore these three characteristics of impermanence, of suffering, and no self, over and over again to see with increasing subtlety how every moment of our experience is a display of these three characteristics. Every moment transitory, every moment ultimately unsatisfactory, every moment without any self-existence. Reflecting in this way is a doorway which can open us to liberating insight. Seeing the three characteristics over and over loosens our tendency to fixate to construct and solidify our personal version of reality. We begin to see the bigger picture, to find we can rest in the seeing itself, discovering that happiness is not an attribute of the wanting mind, but of seeing with the eyes of wisdom and compassion, of resting in spacious awareness. So if we could sit together for a few moments.
May all beings find abiding happiness. May all beings discover liberating insight. May all beings live with wisdom and compassion. This talk was given by Anna Douglas at Insight Meditation Society on July 26, 1996. It is an offering of the Dharma Sita. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.